0: Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies, and with me today is Rachel Moncrief of the ICCT, the International Council on Clean Transportation. Rachel is a program director, and she's with us today to talk about one of the many initiatives and research areas that ICCT is involved in, and that is the True Emissions Initiative. Rachel, welcome to the program. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you as well. So first question, for so we're going to dive right into it here. For the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk about And it's hard to believe, by the way, that people would not be familiar at this point with what ICCT does. But can you talk about what ICCT does, your role within the ICCT, and what the True Emissions Initiative is and and how it came about?
1: Sure. So the ICCT, we're, we're a nonprofit, and our overall mission is to reduce the climate and health impacts from the transport sector. We mainly actually do. We have a lot of technical people at the ICCT, and we mainly do a lot of technical studies and technical work work to essentially support sound policymaking. We work in all the major automotive markets, and we work in all the major transport segments. Um, And we're usually focusing on kind of new vehicle policies that target improved efficiency or reduced emissions, and. My particular role is director over two programs. The first is the heavy-duty vehicle program. That program is mainly focused on policies aimed at approving the efficiency of like, tractor trailers and other similar heavy-duty vehicles. And the second program that I'm a director over is called compliance and enforcement. Um, And that one's focused on basically reducing the gap between real-world emissions and what we would call like official emissions, like emissions that are sort of taken in the lab um, for when vehicles are certified. And the TRUE initiative that you asked about, that actually relates to the compliance and enforcement program that I said. This TRUE initiative, it stands for the Real Urban Emissions Initiative. It's actually, it's a partnership of five different organizations. So us, the FIA Foundation, C40 Cities, Transport and Environment and Global NCAP. and we're essentially focused on collecting and publicizing real-world emissions data, and then working with cities actually to help them use this data in different ways to help them sort of tackle their air pollution issues that they're struggling with.
0: It seems like you know the, the policy discussion about you know real-world emission from vehicles. Particularly, diesel vehicles is prevalent primarily in the EU. That's my impression. What about the US and other countries? Do you see EPA and, and other governments getting more involved in truly regulating real-world emissions? I mean, the, the EU uh, or the European Commission, you know, they now have you know regulations that you know will basically require certification based upon real world emissions. And I don't see, I haven't seen much from other governments in that regard. So do you do you see that changing? And why do you think the U.S. hasn't done as much in this area as it appears to me that the commission has? There's a lot of questions in
1: there. So let me kind of take it kind of one at a time. Well,
0: yeah. Welcome, a lot of welcome to stuff my stuff world.
1: I know. <laughs> Let me start on the question of, is this the European sort of issue with the real world emissions and the diesel vehicles? And I, my answer is sort of yes and no. The EU sort of does have like a special situation um, with diesel cars and, and NOx emissions. Um, and that's due to a lot of different factors. I mean, First of all, as you know, most people know that the diesel cars are very prevalent in Europe and most other major markets don't have such, such a large fraction of um, diesel cars. In their fleet. And then you have also sort of a very interesting fra- historical framework in Europe in ter- when it comes to sort of enforcement of policies. And that is, like you mentioned, the European Commission makes the regulations, but the European Commission up until now has not really had a lot of enforcement over the regulations. So the enforcement goes to the member states. So you have 28 different member states trying to enforce regulations that were developed at the European Commission level. And essentially, due to that and, and some other factors, what it's led to is I would say just very sort of weak enforcement of policies, lots of sort of loopholes that have been kind of exploited by manufacturers. And mm-hmm. that's ultimately led to very high NOx emissions like from diesel cars that are emitting many times, you know, over what you would expect them to emit based on sort of the official limits. And I guess just to mention the reason that it's the issue is sort of with NOx from diesel cars is because it's expensive and it's sort of technically a little bit more challenging to control NOx from diesel. So, you know, some of the other pollutants we haven't seen as big of an issue with because they're easier to control basically. Uh Um, So, yeah, so that's, that's the sort of special situation in Europe. Um, And then you asked about the U S why isn't the U.S. I mean, I would actually kind of argue that the U S, has one of the best programs in the world like I granted that I um, I know you mentioned the sort of real world test procedure that the European Commission has right. developed called RDE and I can certainly talk more about that but just to put in place test procedure is a very important part of sort of good getting low real world emissions but it's not the only part um, and actually, I'll give a little plug for a recent report here that we published.
0: <laughs> um,
1: it's about, It's about basically the best practices for compliance and enforcement programs. Um, and we evaluate, we basically evaluated about 14 different countries and regions in this report from all over the world, from like Asia, Latin America, North America, Europe, et cetera. And we essentially identified seven different best practices that produce sort of like the strongest compliance and enforcement program meaning and that results essentially in the lowest gap between official values and real world values. And mm-hmm. do you want to know what those seven are?
0: Yes, I would uh, and as a matter yes. of, I I will link that I will link that report in the podcast post so that people can easily access it if they want to look at it. Okay.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. And it was, yeah, oh, hopefully it could be um really helpful to people. So I mean one of the things that we identified was sort of clear legal authority. That's sort of a foundational thing. You need to have the agency in charge, needs to have the authority to do, to enforce, and to like force compliance in different ways. The other thing is another one is avoiding conflicts of interest. Sometimes the agencies that are in charge of inf- enforcing standards also might be agencies that are sort of in charge of helping the auto manufacturers succeed in the market. So they might have some kind of conflicts of interest. The third is having, and this is a really important one, having the necessary resources in the program. Mm. You know, we've, we saw in some of the markets that we looked at, there's very, very little resources being devoted to the enforcement side of things and checking on compliance. So if you don't have the resources dedicated, you can't really do too much. Um, I've, and the seen
0: next that. One, I've seen that in fuels over the years, actually. I, I've seen the, the yeah. very same it's like the fuel standard gets put out there and then there's no enforcement. You know? So right.
1: Yeah, right. I've seen that before. And, mm-hmm. then, um, and then the fourth one, which kind of alluded to on the, the testing side of things, and this this is also obviously a key one is that reliable testing has to be done at all stages of production and use of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So at the time when the vehicle is being certified, but then also, you know, when the new vehicles are coming off the production line, they have to be checked. And then also When the vehicles are in use, they have to be periodically checked to make sure that they're still meeting the regulations. So you have to have sort of testing through all the different stages, and that's Mm -hmm. something that um, actually the U.S. has been quite good about doing. And then another one that we found is really important is basically you have to use corrective actions when necessary. So (laughs) if you find that there is a compliance issue, you have to get the manufacturer to fix it. You know whether it's through a recall or whatever, and if there might be fees and penalties involved. And this is something the U.S. actually has a very good history of doing. Um, whereas, like for example, Europe, has there's very little history of, of use of corrective actions. The next one that we found was just sort of prioritizing data and information transparency. So basically letting the public and other stakeholders kind of know what's going on in this whole process and the whole compliance and mm-hmm. enforcement kind of process. Yeah. And then the sort of last one was one that we think is important is just basically having, you know, a roadmap for your compliance and enforcement program because, you know, the US has been working on compliance and enforcement for decades. Some of the, some programs that we looked at are barely honestly just getting started. So they're in a much yeah. different situation. You can't go from zero to a hundred <laughs> overnight, but you need to sort of put in place a roadmap so you kind of know, you know, where you're going and you know, where the key areas are that you need to kind of ramp up your program. So I should mention in our study, when we looked at all of those different best practices, the U.S. actually ranked pretty well, like they were pretty much one of the top ones in terms of following a lot of these best practices. And also regarding the testing, I think that one thing that's really nice that we've seen is just a, relatively recently, you know, you have a lot more availability of equipment to measure real world emissions, that's sort of come down quite a bit in price. So it's more um, accessible to sort of third parties and anyone else who wants to do testing. Um, So I guess it's sort of cheaper and easier nowadays to kind of get the data that maybe wasn't so available not that long ago.
0: So in terms of other countries, were there other countries that also ranked up there? Oh, yeah, I'm thinking off the top of my head, like a Japan or a South Korea, or were, yeah. were there others sort of up there? Or
1: Yeah, South Korea, yeah. I'm really sorry. I remember South Korea did really well. I cannot remember <laughs> if we how Japan did. And in Europe, we sort of looked at the status quo, like where they are right now, but that's but we did sort of talk in the report about how Europe has a lot of new policies that are coming out sort of right when we were writing the report so we're hoping that they that would help them sort of increase their grades like if we if we reevaluated
0: so i want to go back to the true emissions initiative so right now it seems to me that it's really the data is being collected primarily in London and Paris are there other cities that are involved? And what is the actual, you know, process? I mean, um, when I was reaching out to you uh, to, to do the podcast, there was a video, a video of you and I've seen Sheila Watson from the FIA Foundation, you know, like standing out in the middle of the road or next to the road. And, you know, there's like a whole situation going on with remote sensing and all of that. So can you, for the, especially for the listeners who are really sort of non-technical and not as familiar, what does that whole process entail and, and, you know, and what is it like? Um, And then also, what are you finding?
1: So the main technology that we're sort of using to measure real world emissions for the true project is called remote sensing. For the sort of non-technical people, um, it's actually basically set up in on a side of a real street where you have real cars driving by, the cars don't know what you're doing. They don't know that they're being measured for emissions or anything like that. And you essentially pass a beam of light through the exhaust of the vehicle as they drive by. And that beam of light essentially is able to give you the concentration of different pollutants like NOx and hydrocarbons and CO um, in the exhaust. And at the same time that the vehicle drives by, you're getting the speed and acceleration of the vehicle that's being measured and you are getting the license plate of the vehicle and from that you can get the specifications of the vehicle such as like the make and the model and the year and the fuel type and all of that and so you have this information about the vehicle you have like a snapshot of the emissions in every time a vehicle goes by so you, one vehicle passing by or 10 vehicles passing by doesn't give you a lot of information uh-huh. but what you get over time is you get thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands of vehicles passing by. And by that point, statistically, you're able to actually get a lot of information about the emissions in the fleet to the point where you can actually say the average emissions of a given vehicle model. And so what's happened is in Europe, there's been a number of these remote sensing campaigns done over the past five years, Uh, not necessarily by us, but by other researchers. Uh and was a project called Konox, which was sponsored by the Swiss government. And the purpose of that project was to essentially pool all the existing remote sensing data in all over Europe. Europe's a single market. So essentially, all the vehicles that are being sold all over Europe are, are the same. I mean, there, there's nothing specific about driving a vehicle in Paris or a vehicle in London. The same model is going to have similar emissions signature. So we, compiled, we, we were involved with this project um, to pool all the European data. And then just that alone gave us a database of over 700,000 um, individual records. And huh. then the TRUE project got additional funding to sponsor another about 200,000 records. And those were huh. being collected in London and Paris. So actually, by the time the Paris testing is finished, we're going to have close to a million records for Europe. Yeah. Um, and that gives you, there's a lot you can do with that um, level of data uh, in terms mm-hmm. of figuring out real world emissions from vehicles.
0: So is there a plan to take the initiative to other cities beyond London and Paris? Or right now is the focus primarily going to be on those, those, in those two cities? And I know there also is another component of, of this, which is once I would imagine the data is analyzed and, and aggregated, it will be public, publicly available now, so consumers actually can, t- can take a look and see what their vehicle is is actually doing in the real world.
1: Yeah, and actually, yeah. That's, yeah. that there already is some information publicly available. There's a website. The initiative has its own website, so it's mm-hmm. trueinitiative.org, um, mm-hmm. if anyone's interested. And on that website, you can actually go ahead, if you live in Europe, you can go ahead and look up your um, vehicle make and model, and you can kind of see how it's scored. Either red, yellow, or green, in nice. terms of real-world NOx emissions. So that that's already available, and there's also some reports if for the people that are, want to get more into the details. There's some t- more technical reports on the kind of describe how we did it and the methodologies um, that we used to to analyze the data. Um, that that's all available there on the website regarding sort of future cities. Yes, we definitely want to work in more cities within Europe, and then also expand outside of Europe. Europe has some cities that are really struggling with sort of air quality issues, but so do many Uh cities outside. And that's kind of usually how we decide where we would want to work, especially cities probably in Asia and Latin America would probably be our next target.
0: And that makes sense. I mean, it is, it is amazing to to see. I mean, it, I I guess amazing, but to me, not surprising. I am, you know, the, (laughs) that we have a problem with with NOx um and um and and, and you NO2 know, but it it is really serious because I believe ICCT has has come out with a figure you know it's uh, 38,000 or or thir- at least mm-hmm. 30,000 yes. people dying from exposure um every year so it is you know a, a really serious concern so that leads me to You know, my next question here, and by the way, I will make available um, the link to the True Emissions website as well so that people who are listening to this can sort of easily go and take a look at that website as well. So that leads me to my next question, though, and that is analysis has shown, and I believe from ICCT, maybe Transport and Environment and others, that even new Euro 6 compliant emission standard compliant vehicles you know, they still emit up to 18 times more NOx than, um, you know, the current standards permit. So that leads me to, I know we're going to have the RDE, so that's, you know, going to come into effect, you know, maybe some of the gaps will be closed. But I guess the philosophical question I have is, can we really have diesel in the LDV fleet, you know, in Europe and and perhaps elsewhere? I mean, you know, can we really have, you know, with, with what's we're seeing with air pollution and, and you know, the health impacts, you know, does it make sense? And do you think that the European Commission is going to have to do more in this area? I mean, even considering, like, you know, bans. I mean, it, it is happening a lot in Europe. There appears to be justification for that based on some of the data and analysis that has come out.
1: Another loaded question. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me try to take it for take it one step at a time. So, yeah. the, first of all, I wanted to back up on the number that you mentioned, the 38,000, just to yeah. clarify that that report actually showed that, that 38,000 sort of premature deaths per year mm-hmm. that's just from what we call excess diesel NOx. That's just mm-hmm. from NOx that was emitted over the limit. So there's actually a lot more deaths that are happening but it's just not from um but that's just from like basically permitted knocks. So just right, it's right. it's almost in some ways worse than it seems. Um regarding the question about Euro 6 compliant vehicles. So the report that you know you're talking about actually showed yes the the sort of Euro 6 like you said non RDE but Euro 6 Fairly new vehicles, uh, diesel vehicles, can be emitting 18. I think it was like 18.6 was the highest one that we measured times the times the limit. On the low end, though, we actually saw some non-RDE diesel vehicles emitting 1.9 times the limit. So that basically shows, and this is what we've been saying for a long time, it's not it's not a technology barrier. There's no reason why you cannot have diesel vehicles that emit NOx at levels the same as petrol vehicles there's just no technology barrier what it is is a cost you know question mm-hmm. and of mm-hmm. course it like I already said before it's also making sure that there's there's good enforcement so you know if they can focus on basically like having strong enforcement and making it so it's not worth it to the manufacturers to be able to emit once they emit these high levels and it costs them more to have high emissions than it would cost them to like put in place really good emissions controls then you know that can help solve the solve the issue but like you said there's already many very high emitting vehicles out there that are being sold even to this day and they're going to be in the fleet for a long time so Uh even though let's say even if rde Works perfectly. Let's say all the vehicles, you know, coming out that are certified under RDE have very, very low emissions for the life for their lifetime, which still remains mm-hmm. to be seen. But let's say that is the yeah. case. You know, what do you do with all of these vehicles that are still out there and being sold this day that are producing very high emissions and causing cities to have to kind of, you know, have that bad air quality? And cities are kind of in mm-hmm. kind of in charge of dealing with this. So when you look at it that way, you can kind of understand why cities might move to ban diesels or at least ban older. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. Do you see that trend continuing? Do you see the the commission moving in that direction? Or do you see that the, the ban issue is more of a uh, located, it, it's really more of a city response. Of course, there are some countries that have announced bans, um, but really this issue has been more uh, relegated to the city level. So do you see that continuing just as a way to try and manage the issue or, you know, are there other sorts of policy responses that, that might be considered in the, you know, scrappage, you know, incentives, you know, something like that?
1: Personally, I feel that most of the solutions to the in-use for vehicle issue Have to come at the sort of national, like member state level, or at the city or regional level. I think it's going to be not quite sure how the commission can kind of handle that, at least from a policy way. I mean, they can certainly sort of invest money in looking at different solutions and that sort of thing, but I think it's going to be challenging for them to put in place um, policies that really address the the kind of in use issue. Um, So I do think it's going to come down. To like you said, the countries or the cities. Um, And I think, you know, many cities, there's a lot of different policy options that you have. I mean, you mentioned a good one, scrappage. I think that's definitely something that a lot of cities are thinking about. And, you know, along with scrappage, there's a lot of other different kind of, I guess, more voluntary programs and then there's also the more mandatory programs like you said like establishing restriction areas or bans or low emission zones or you know kind of charging the higher emitting vehicles that want to come in so there's actually like a slew of policies that cities have and like getting back to this why we're doing the true initiative we feel that like a lot of those policies can be implemented more effectively if you have more granular Data and information on really what's the real world emissions of all these different vehicles in your in your city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the main reasons we want to be able to inform these type of policies.
0: Yeah, knowledge knowledge is power. In, in in essence, right? I mean, I mean that's that's really you know it's not just for consumers, but for but for cities as well that have to that are you know sort of dealing with this issue and trying to figure out ways to deal with it. You know, how do you deal with you know, per- per- getting people around, you know, the way that they want to get around and also, you know, um, you know, dealing with the, the air quality and, and health effects. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big issue. These cities are, are sort of um, trying to grapple with for sure. So you talked about moving to Tru- that, that true could, could, you know, over time will move to, you know, other cities within Europe and outside of Europe. You know, sort of coming into to the program over over time. How else do you see um, the True Emissions Initiative, you know, evolving?
1: You know, over the next uh, few years. That's a good question. So, I mean, that's actually something that we're talking about internally as well. One thing is, I would say, you know, so far we've very we've been very focused on NOx emissions, and we've been very focused on passenger cars. Well, there's other pollutants of interest. I mean, there's particulate uh-huh. matter, there's hydrocarbons, yeah. there's carbon monoxide. So, And we definitely have that data, but we just haven't uh-huh. yet done you know, enough analysis of it. So we definitely want to expand to other pollutants. And then there's also other vehicle segments. One that could be quite interesting in Europe and probably elsewhere is what they call like the light commercial vehicles, sort of the vans
0: uh-huh. Um they're yeah. very
1: prevalent in cities and um, a lot of them are very high emitting. There's taxis, there's buses. Those are all vehicles that you see a lot in cities. And, you know, the interesting thing about the kind of commercial vehicles and then also the sort of the taxis and the buses is the cities might have a little bit more control sometimes over those fleets because, you know, sometimes they might be sort of like municipal fleets or fleets where the cities can have more control over the procurement of the vehicles. So I think, you know, we definitely want to look at different segments. There's also one thing that's come up more recently we haven't looked at too much yet is the motorcycles and this kind of these little uh-huh. scooters and stuff. They can be very um, high polluting as well. And with the remote sensing technology, you can get, it doesn't discriminate, you can get data on any type of vehicle that might yeah. be of interest. So some other cities, like maybe outside of Europe, they might have a bigger yeah. issue from another segment or another pollutant that we want to focus on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a big deal in in a country like India, where the motorcycle population, you know, outnumbers, um, you know, the car, car fleet there, for now anyway. And, uh, yeah, I, I can think of another, another, you know, a, a group of countries that, you know, that would be really relevant. So there was a recent global workshop on The True Emissions Initiative held in London. Can you talk a little bit about um, about that and um, and what the outcomes were?
1: It was the first week of June. We wanted to get together, sort of a bunch of cities, to share with them what we've done so far with the True Initiative in London, what we're what we're doing in Paris, and to kind of share with them some data, some analysis, and get feedback from them, from the cities, on where. Their greatest needs are, um, and learn more from them. So it was it was definitely like a very nice exchange. We had 15 cities represented. I would say about half were from uh, inside of Europe, and then half were from outside of Europe. We had some from Asia and Latin America and Africa, and it was it was very enlightening for me because you just learn that you know not everyone is dealing with this diesel car issue like they are in Europe, and you know some cities are already coming to the table with. Quite a lot of data and quite a good understanding of the sources of emissions in their fleet, and some might have very little or no data. So it's everyone's kind of starting from a different place. Also, um, some of the cities have been working on like low emission zones and different strategies for many years at this point, and some are interested in doing that but haven't done anything on that yet. So it's definitely quite a range. So from the True Initiative perspective, you know, we want to like I said, identify some new cities to work in, taking into account cities that obviously like have an air quality issue, that would be number one, and cities that are willing to sort of work with us and want to implement new effective policies and can really have a benefit from um new data and new data um analysis techniques we would bring to the table.
0: My next question. That I'd like to ask, you know, concerns the auto industry, both in Europe and globally. So, what has been the the reaction to, you know, the True Emissions um, Initiative and just the overall work in this area? Because I think most I think most people who work in the industry know this, but the consumer listener or to to the show may not know that it was you know i c c t and um West Virginia university who actually uh which actually found the the issues which led to the whole diesel gate so that's a uh, mm-hmm. that's a that's another sort of calling card if you will um for those who may not be familiar uh, with that so you know with with all of that and with the true emissions initiative what's been the the reaction um and and do you see you know partnering um with them on
1: some of these issues? Going forward, the ICCT. I don't. I don't want to overstate our role. I mean, It was very, very important. But I also want to make sure to highlight the role that, like, the agencies did here in yes, the US yes, EPA absolutely. in California, because yes. we did the initial testing. It was actually back in about I think 2013. We commissioned this testing from West Virginia, and mm-hmm. we found very suspicious results on some Volkswagen vehicles. At that point you know, we did publish a report, although the vehicles were anonymized in that report, which you can still find on our website. But we ended up giving all of this data over to California Air Resources Board and to EPA and asking them, you know, telling them basically, this is something you might want to look into. And then they spent the next, you know, year plus doing a lot more additional testing and a lot of back and forth with Volkswagen. And then finally, you know, the scandal broke. So it was, Right, really right. we sort of found this initial thing and then they and that that's actually a very good example of what i was talking about before in terms of best practices yeah. you know it might have been in another country where we have, would have said look we found something kind of suspicious and if they didn't do anything then nothing would have ever happened right so right. they took it and ran and they were able to have the sort of strong authority to kind of move forward through all those stages yeah.
0: and so, quick yeah. i mean quickly i mean i mean it took a it took a, over a year to, to sort of, you know, get to the truth of it. And there was a, you know, I know, and I know the whistleblower within uh, Volkswagen who, who, who ultimately came forward, but um, (laughs) admitted, Mm -hmm. copped, if you will. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, um, and, you know, I think that, I think that's the thing that might be surprising, I think, to sort of the average, Again, the the consumer listener to this, you know, it's like, well, what, why is this happening in, in Europe? You know, it's been covered in the New York Times, the differences between the U.S. Pro, approach and the EU approach and, and other sorts of news sources that consumers would um, be able to read. And I think the question that has come to me is, well, what's, you know, OK, why is this happening in Europe? I mean, in the U.S., it's like, you know... <laughs> It was, uh, once the, you know, once it was, um, admitted, I mean, the action was collective, swift, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know and very um you know it was you know you know billions and billions of dollars in mm-hmm. in fines uh, people have gone to jail and you know it started in the obama administration and the trump um yeah, department of justice has consent, con- continued to you know pursue that case i mean people are now in jail i mean it's um mm-hmm. it it is it is a it is interesting but it does go back to what you say is it is about you know, the enforcement authority, which is very clear and very strong, both for the California Air Research Board and also at the national level for EPA, whereas within the commission, you know, it simply, you know, didn't exist. I mean, it was very difficult to pursue any kind of enforcement action and investigations are are still kind of going on. It's, uh, it is kind of an interesting contrast.
1: Definitely. I mean, the people, I'm not sure how, Maybe people realize this, but essentially in Europe, and they've they're putting in place um, rules to change this framework. But like, let's say if you're Volkswagen and you get your vehicle certified, or they call it type approved, by the German authority, German type approval authority, that gives you permission to sell anywhere in the single market. Now, when it comes to enforcement, the only agency that can sort of rescind that type approval or do any kind of enforcement action is that same German type approval authority. So really the commission didn't have any power. Any of the other member state type approval authorities didn't have any power. Everything was relying on the German type approval authority to take action against Volkswagen. But then at the same time, what happened when what came out was that Volkswagen in Europe This, what they were doing in Europe was like a lot of the manufacturers were basically doing the same thing. It wasn't really Uh just a Volkswagen issue in Europe as it it was in the US. It was in the US, it was essentially just a Volkswagen issue. In Europe, it's almost in every manufacturer issue. Mm -hmm. And I probably, you know, the German Tiger Pool Authority is like, well, everyone else is doing it. It's like, why should we just be extra hard on our industry, you know, our domestic manufacturer? So there's definitely things being put in place to kind of solve some of those conflicts. But yeah. it's definitely a complicated situation there. And I know I realized I didn't answer your question before about the response.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the been the reaction? Yeah. yeah. What's been um, the reaction? I mean, I
1: think, group? you know, they are probably frustrated because they are thinking to themselves, like, we're investing a lot of money to get our cars ready to kind of comply with this new regulation, this RDE Regulation and you're putting out data about cars that are er, we already sold, <laughs> how can you do that? and you know our of course argument is what I said before is like well these these cars are being sold up to this day, and they're gonna be driven for a number of years, and there's many of them still on the road, so you know we do have a lot of confidence and hope that r d e will definitely help eliminate um a lot of these issues, but we also feel like we need solutions for the vehicles that are already out there. And unfortunately, like I haven't really seen a lot of solutions coming from the side of the automakers on how to fix that issue. Um, uh-huh. You know, there have been some recalls, some voluntary recalls here and there. It's There's not a lot of information on really how effective, you know, those recalls have been and they certainly are not like affecting necessarily the mate, all the fleet or anything like that. So would like to see, if the manufacturers have any ideas on like, say, how to solve the issue of the vehicles that are already out there that have very high emissions. And then in terms of us sort of partnering, um, you know, we have definitely collaborated with all sorts of stakeholders in the past. I think the main thing about ICCT is that we do try to remain sort of impartial and independent, which is the one main reason we take no funding from industry. Uh-huh. So we are yeah. never sort of constrained as to what we can do or say. So, you know, we're happy yeah. to partner with different stakeholders when, it, when and where it makes sense. Um, and it can and the partnership can have some value to it. But we also, you know, have to stick to sort of our yeah. main mission, right. <laughs> which right. is to be transparent and publish good, technically sound data.
0: And be independent, which, of course, and which, of course, makes sense. So the last question that I have is just again kind of from the, the philosophical perspective. I mean right now we have um an an issue primarily with with diesel vehicles, you know, in Europe and, you know, um eh, potentially elsewhere, but, but the locus is in Europe because as you say, it's a it's a deep, very diesel diesel driven uh market. But how do you see the the light duty fleet, you know, evolving you know, generally over the next, you know, let's say 10 to, to 20 years? I mean, in other words, is this a, a temporary issue at the end of the day? Because we will probably see more electrification or hybridization or, you know, how do you see it?
1: There's a few different ways I would like look at that question. Um, first of all, in terms of, I think it's interesting if you're, um, we also have some information about this on our website, but if you track the sales uh, the share essentially of diesel vehicles and the new and the new vehicle sales since since dieselgate and since a lot of major cities have kind of started announcing either bans or restrictions on, on diesel vehicles, the share of diesel has gone down fairly substantially and it continues to sort of trend down because I think a lot of people are thinking, well I don't necessarily want to buy a diesel vehicle if I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to drive it into the city. I'm not sure, like maybe what the, the resale value might be going down. So I think definitely this dieselgate has had an impact, had a measurable impact um, in some ways on the share of diesels in the European fleet. But in terms of longer term, I think one of the things that's really driving like you thinking about like hybrids and, and EVs and the sort of more advanced powertrains, trains are um, the combination of the fuel efficiency standards and the, what they call the ZEV mandates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most of the major markets, all the major markets, have some kind of efficiency standard in place where they're essentially saying, okay, you know, your vehicles have to, your your overall like average fuel consumption from vehicles have to continue to improve year to year. Um, I think Europe just recently put out the farthest reaching ones that go out to 2030, and we believe that they will, that will definitely for some more uptake of electric vehicles and hybrids into the fleet, and I think you're going to kind of see that continuing trend of efficiency standards being used, hopefully strategically, to kind of force conventional vehicles to improve their efficiency, but to also kind of make it so it's going to be more cost effective to introduce sort of zero emission vehicles into the fleet. Yes. I
0: definitely see that happening. Definitely, definitely, it's already happening. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. That's the show. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Rachel so much for being on the show today. <laughs> and I want to thank you also for being a good sport with my multi-part questions. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a thing uh, that I do. But anyway, uh, we re- I really appreciate you and, uh, and ICCT uh, on behalf of ICCT doing the, doing the podcast and, um, and sharing your perspective. And if you're looking for more information and analysis on future fuels and vehicles issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. Uh, Thanks again. That's the show.